Hey guys, this is Joy, and this is a bonus episode for Mental Health Awareness Week. It is October 4th through October 10th in the United States, but I think mental health, of course, is very near and dear to my heart, and we should always be aware of mental health. But specifically, I wanted to release an episode this week because I always want to bring these topics to the forefront of our mind. I think this year especially has been very, very difficult for all of us. So I brought on my friend Joy. Yes, it's another therapist named Joy to the podcast. Joy, hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. (laughs) It's going to be a little confusing because we're like, it's Joy and Joy. But you know what? It's all the joy on this podcast episode. So (laughs) yeah, Joy Squared. Yeah, Joy Squared. So how did we meet? Well, it's really kind of funny. This is the perfect situation of Claire and I meeting amazing people on our podcast. Joy, you've been a listener of the Joy and Claire show, and um, or this is Joy and Claire. That's so funny, because last week, Claire and I were like, we almost called it, this is the Joy and Claire show, and Girls Gone Wad. And so you and I met over the interwebs. I realized that you were uh, a doctor of behavioral health. Is it are you PhD or PsyD? I can't remember. I'm PsyD. Okay. Yeah. That's why my that's why my uh, IG is Psy, like the word. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so Psy. Yes, 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 yes. Um, so for all of you non-psychology nerds out there, a PsyD versus a PhD, I'll get into that in a second as far as um, Joy's experience. But we met on the inter- interwebs. She and I started talking over the past couple of years, I would say. And then we just became like Marco friends. Like you and I just started doing Marco Polo. And so I've been marking you almost every every other day or every week at least, um, just talking about life, talking about things that are going on in our world. This is our actual first like live conversation. <laughs> I know, which I was thinking about that. And I was thinking this is probably super way more common for you than it is for me to be to have some kind of exchange with someone for a while and then to do an episode with them. Totally, totally. So you're like, this is kind of weird. But for me, I'm like, this is my life. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining me today. I just adore you. And I I think you have a such a wealth of knowledge for our listeners. So what we're going to be talking about today, we had a lot of questions in our comments or not our comments, but I did a, a call out for questions on our Insta stories and you guys really delivered. So there's a lot of questions out there. We'll try to kind of cover all of them in themes and give you resources, but certainly I will continue to put resources in the show notes. And then you can always email us. This is joyandclaire at gmail.com with additional questions, or if you ever need help getting resources, I can point you in the right direction. So Joy, why don't you give the listeners a quick bio? I'll also go over my like professional bio after you, but uh, go ahead and tell the listeners who you are and what you do. So I've been in mental health care for about 15 years. I, like you, am a licensed professional counselor in, in the state where I live, which is Pennsylvania. And, and then I, and I worked in crisis intervention for several years and then decided I wanted to go back to school to be a psychologist, which is something I've wanted to do since I was 10. And so, you know, it was good to, to do that. And I went back in my thirties and I'm a, I'm probably about another six months away of being licensed as a psychologist. I work at the Pennsylvania version of Kaiser. So uh, it's a place called UPMC and it's a super, super large hospital system like Kaiser. So I love that work. I love this sort of interplay of psychology and lots of other things. I've done both clinical work and I've done a lot of like leadership development, training, things like that. 
Uh, and I think this is, uh, I really love that y'all are doing this. I think it's a great opportunity to just talk about and think about something that's so important to so many people all over the country and the world right now. I think a lot of people still, there's still a stigma attached to mental health. I mean, I, it's, it's changed so much in the past 20 years since I've been in the field, even when I was in grad school, just the idea of going to therapy was still a little bit taboo. You know, self-disclosure, I know I've said this before, but I had never gone to therapy when I started as a therapist. And I had a weird feeling about therapy of me actually going to therapy. I truly believe that every graduate program should have their students go to therapy. Our program did not, but I, you know, took it upon myself to do it. And I just, I can't imagine not going to therapy and being a therapist. So you kind of have that idea of what it's like to be on the other side of the chair. To back up for just a second, I I think most listeners know my background, but I am a licensed professional counselor. And, And just to kind of give you guys the distinction of what the degrees mean too, if you're seeking out help, an LCSW, an LPC, an LMFT, any license can treat most behavioral health or, or mental health issues. So if you have anxiety or depression, don't get too caught up on seeing a PhD versus a PsyD versus an LCSW versus an LPC. Almost every provider, every therapist can treat you. It's just a matter, and I will be a broken record about this, of a good fit. Do you like your therapist? And we had a question come up that I'll get to later about how do I know? How do I know if I have the right therapist? Joy is also an LPC. I am an LPC. That just means licensed professional counselor. We took a test. We are credentialed in the state to practice. I've been doing that for about, God, I think I was licensed, like actually licensed in 2006. And I worked with juveniles and adolescents for about 11 years. And then I moved over to Kaiser Permanente, which is a huge hospital system, insurance carrier and healthcare provider. And I'll... God, like the Northwest, West Coast, some East Coast. They're not in every state, but it's a pretty large organization. And right now I manage a behavioral health team of about 23 licensed professionals in the mental health field. And we do outpatient care. So anyone who's coming in for weekly therapy, I also work with patients who are in intensive outpatient programs or needing a higher level of care. Uh, we work very closely with eating disorders, chemical dependency, psychiatry. So we have a really cool integrated team, but that's kind of the, the nutshell of what I do on a daily basis. Um, so really specifically today, we wanted to address your questions. And a lot of it has so much to do, no surprise, around the pandemic and how we're dealing with the pandemic. Joy, is there anything kind of like off the top of your head that you feel that you see in your day-to-day life with your professional world of what people are struggling with. I personally can speak, you know, like Zoom meetings, the lack of connection, the feeling that every day is kind of like Groundhog Day, et cetera, et cetera. I think a lot of people are struggling with addiction, depression, loneliness. So we'll get to that. But is there anything kind of that you want to chime in on that you feel is important to address? Sure. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the the biggest misses, I think, from a messaging perspective, when this all started in March, was the way that we started talking about the need for physical distancing as social distancing. I think that was a really huge opportunity uh, to get to tweak our language a little bit. Um, And had we tweaked the language, we might have had initially some maybe more robust ability to connect, you know, uh, in different ways. Because, uh, you know, the idea of physical distancing is one sort of like it's like keeping away from each other, making sure you're maintaining. But social distancing implies something different. And 
it was like, it's the wrong thing. It was exactly what we didn't need. If we were going to be holed up in our homes, you know, taking decon showers and like, you know, being super paranoid. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) We needed to do that and like be calling people that we cared about and marketing people and texting people and maybe even being on social media more than we would normally be. Um, And so I think that, you know, for me in clinical practice and in my personal life, really talking through with people who I know were struggling and thinking about for myself, you know, how can I remain socially connected, but physically distant? I totally agree with that. And that's something I always found really interesting when the pandemic started was the social distance versus the physical distance, and how we've kind of talked about socially distancing. And I think that is a mistake because it is like, no, we need to stay socially connected, but how can we just stay physically distant so that we're keeping each other safe? So kind of reframing our mind around that, I think is really important. Such a weird time. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so true. So true. You know, and I think that's the the struggle for so many of the groups of folks who already struggle to maintain connection in, you know, when things are sort of going well. Um, so, you know, elderly folks, people with, you know, s- serious illness, whether that be physical illness or mental illness, um, you know, folks who are in recovery, all of these different groups where, you know, staying connected is so important to, I mean, staying connected is important to human existence, but I think that there are particularly folks who need that even so much more. And they, they tend to be the people that are their the impact if they were to get coronavirus would be, of course, devastating. Right. But the other side of it is, is that the the lack of connection has been devastating in a different way, which I think is something that we have to think about and, and hold as a culture, because it's not, it's not, um, you know, it's not just the, the matter of like, oh, we're going to keep these people in their homes and they'll be safe. Right. They will be safe from a, the pandemic, hopefully. And of course, that's what we want. Mm-hmm. But we also like, how do we promote sort of the connection and uh, supports they need to keep mental well-being high? It's really hard right now. Everything seems like, I was thinking about this the other day, like life itself is difficult. It just is. It's difficult. So true. Life is tough. <laughs> you add on every single thing that has happened this year, and it's like we are all carrying an elephant in addition to trying to just live our lives, live live our daily lives. I really like what Brene Brown has talked about recently on her podcast. Well, it was maybe like in the past three months, Unlocking Us. If you haven't heard it, please go check it out. About comparative suffering. And I, someone pointed out to me that I did that on, the, on our last episode, that I was like downplaying my own struggle with my lack of routine right now, or, or I should say my big upheaval of my past routines. My routines have been shaken. And someone pointed out to me that I compared it to being like, well, at least, you know, I don't have it as bad as so-and-so or I, you know, this feels very surface level because I'm not having to, to manage a whole family or I don't have children, you know, I just have to deal with my husband and my, my animals. And someone wrote and was like, joy, your comparative suffering, like you, your feelings are valid. And I'm like, oh, that's funny. I know that, but I totally said that. So um, it's just an easy thing. I shouldn't say easy, but it's like it's we tend to fall into that trap of comparative suffering. So let's talk a little bit about um, some of our listener questions and people having to deal with the pandemic. Specifically, someone asked tips on dealing with the indefinite time frame of this, especially for those who can't see family. 
it is indefinite. We do not have the end of this. And I was reading about the surge capacity about how, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, there was a previous, on our previous episode of This is Joy and Claire, um, there's an article that I posted from Medium talking about surge capacity of how typically when we have some type of natural disaster, it happens and then you move on. Or you have a death and you move, not move on, but you have a death, you deal with it. You deal, you have the event and then you have the aftermath. Well, we are in this indefinitely, truly indefinitely. How do you deal with that? Do you have thoughts, Joy? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is going to sound so counterintuitive, I think, for a lot of people. But when I respond to things like mass casualty events or something like that, that's a devastating loss. There's some things that we do from like a psychological first aid perspective that I think could be helpful for us to kind of use to maintain during this time. And the one of them, one of them is actually to uh, intentionally disconnect from media. So I'm not suggesting we like never watch the news or never read news stories, because I don't think that's particularly helpful either. Like we can't just like put, you know, I, I, it, I mean, it would actually be sort of easier if we could just like hang out in our basements, you know, like peering through the windows. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice without all of right, this coming right. at us, right? <laughs> Right. But I think, I mean, we need to be informed, but, you know, the intention of news is to get us to consume more news. And so they're not necessarily always providing us information. So we have to make a decision, okay, like, what information do I need to continue to, you know, be be engaged in my civic duty, uh, have information about what's going on in the pandemic, whatever that might look like, but to always be engaging with news is, I think, a really bad thing because we do it to manage our anxiety by trying to get answers and they don't have yes. answers for us. Okay. That's such a good point is, is lack of information causes more anxiety. hundred percent, hundred percent. Okay. So I see this on my teams. If you're ma- if you manage a team or if you work on a team, if your boss doesn't give you an answer, Vague equals anxiety. Vague equals room for us to make up stories. So if you have a vague answer, you're going to fill in the holes because your anxiety wants you to fill in the holes because your anxiety is going, we need an answer. We need something. So then your anxiety is going to be like, okay, I'm going to make up a story because I need something to glob onto. That's such a good point that you bring up. It was like, we need answers. And then if we don't have an answer, you make it up and you start to, you start to spin. Right. And, and the, you know, there's a, there's a biological, there's a, there's a biological reason from like an evolutionary perspective, why we are like that, which is, you know, I always say we're like the descendants of the people that when the grass rustled, we ran. And like the people that were like, it's the wind, man, like saber tooth tigers, I ate them. So there's like less of those people in the genetic, you know, gene pool. Um, And we're the people who were the descendants of the people who ran. And so when we perceive a something threatening in our environment, we, the holes that we fill in the absence of good information are always going to be the most terrible anxiety provoking, you know, zombie apocalypse. Totally. And, and so then like the news right now, again, we have to thoughtfully connect to that. I mean, I, I of course read articles. I listen to some news podcasts, Mm -hmm. you know, that are important to me, but I am not consuming media 24 Mm seven. That would be a terrible, it's just not a good decision from a mental health perspective Mm -hmm. right now because it's just making a spin out. It's making a spin out. But the other thing that I was thinking of too, is the balance of, at least I think of this is, well, I don't want to seem like I'm ignoring. So it's not, either or. You can watch the news, get informed, and then do it with boundaries. Put boundaries on the news. 
But that doesn't mean that you're just ignoring it if you shut it off, because that's what I'll tend to do. I will tend to flood myself with news. It's really not good for me because I'm just like, but I want to be informed. I want to like traumatize myself because I feel like I need to traumatize myself in order to be in the trauma of the world. I need to like be in it like this martyr syndrome. And I don't think that that's like, that's, that doesn't do anybody any service. You know, it doesn't do anybody any good because then you're not healthy for rising up to help the world. Right. And that's the thing is like, you know, the intention of the things that we will teach in psychological first aid is so that we can get filled back up and have some time to repair. The difference is, is if we were in a place where like you were saying, like it's, it's something that happens. So, I mean, even with what's happening, I mean, the, the devastation that's happening in California right now, and, and along the, the West Coast and, and in that part of the country, even in Colorado, you know, is that there'll be an end to it. Right. And then we can kind of connect back and start like restart where we are. And this mm-hmm. we don't know. I mean, eventually we think this will end, but we don't know the timeline on it. Right. So how do we kind of continue to fill ourselves up and fill in those gaps so that when we're so we don't get totally burned out mm-hmm. um, in this, which I think to your point, how do I if we get burned out, what will happen is we will most likely we will move away from any and all engagement in the things that I think that are important for us as a as a culture, you know, and if you're listening to the United States to us as a country, I know that you have listeners that are other places. Right. And so let's see. So as far as like, there's another one's kind of adjacent to what she said was someone else asked about having anxiety, having a lot of winter is coming anxiety and not being able to be outside. The kind of the same thing of like how you deal with this indefinite time frame. How do we deal with this pandemic of like this limitation of not being able to do what we normally did? You know, the things that you did, I mean, I think about this summer, Scott and I usually go to concerts, you know, we, we didn't do any of that, of course. And, you know, what do you normally do in the winter? To be quite honest, I feel like winter is probably going to be uh, with, with the exception of like going out or going to plays or going to like Christmas events or things like that, I feel like we're probably going to do more of what we've done in the winter. Because I feel like the summertime is like those outdoor activities. Um, well, you know, I guess I kind of stand corrected because summer, we were able to get outside. Summer, we were able to get outside and like use that as an alternative to sure. the things that we might have been doing in groups. So maybe winter is going to be harder where we're kind of dealing with that super isolation. We can't even go to parties where you're indoors and seeing people. So yeah, that's that's going to be really hard. So how do we deal with these changes? I still feel like this has a lot to do with grief and grieving the loss of our normalcy. I recommend continuously finding ways to socialize safely yeah, and be creative like we were just talking about. Like, Don't think of the physical distance, we need a physical distance, but don't, let's stop calling it social distancing. Let's call it physical distancing. How do we amp up social connection? Get on Marco Polo. I can't tell you like Marco Polo is my therapy. So I can kind of keep connected to all of my friends. And Zoom calls, I think are fine. I think people are kind of getting exhausted with that. But you know, finding ways to safely go out to dinner, maybe it's in smaller groups, maybe you're not going to be able to do large group gatherings, things of that nature, but getting creative with how to spend your time indoors in the winter. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, some things that have been helpful to me are uh, for my birthday, we did like a, I, I think Airbnb does, I don't know, Constance arranged it. I just came. Right. But it was like a double date with friends. And we weren't, we were at, we visited virtually the Stonewall 
archives. Oh, wow. And one of the, yeah, it was super cool, which is strangely down in Florida, not in New York. But it was, it, I mean, it was amazing. Uh, man, I wish I could remember the name of the guy that took us on the tour. He was wonderful. But things like that, you know, I thought that was a really great thing. Mm-hmm. There are ways, I think, even like local museums and cultural places are doing things that are virtual. Virtual, or, yeah. Or like very small group. Mm-hmm. Um, I think relying on what are those things. I want to be mindful, too, about like the economics of it. Because I think that's the other part of it is like being able to go outside is pretty economically neutral for the most part Mm -hmm. a lot of the indoor stuff that we might do in the winter time may cost money for sure Uh, but i i also think that if we think about it like you know if you can become a member of a museum or something like that and you think about that cost per year versus the amount you might pay on going to dinner multiple times right. or going to a movie or going to a concert, you know, maybe that would make economic sense for families. Yep. Um, it's certainly something that we do in our family and it's given us more outlets virtually because we support a lot of like local cultural things. Again, I want to be mindful that like, I would suspect that a lot of the people that listen to this podcast can do that too, but I know that's not completely universal for mm-hmm. for all folks. Mm-hmm. Versus again, being able to go outside is pretty, regardless of kind of where you are economically, that's a that's something that most people can engage in. Yeah, for sure. But I think the other thing that I've done is I will go on Facebook events, and I'll just kind of see what's in my area. And there's tons yeah. of online activities. And yep. I think that's a really cool way to socially connect too. So maybe we can just kind of do a list too, if people have ideas for what they want to do this winter, we can put a list together of how we are managing and activities and how we aren't going to feel so alone. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So the other thing is, I'm going to just kind of breeze through this because I do want to address address it, but I don't want to spend too much time because I'm also noticing the clock of like how many things we have to get to. But someone just (laughs) said that they did test positive for COVID and how do you deal with the anxiety? Absolutely, 100%. That is scary. What I would say is continue to consult with your physician and talk to your doctor and share with them that you're scared and say, what can I do to stay as healthy as possible? When should I? What it always helps me to like know what to look for if I should be concerned. So you kind of have those facts from a professional of like, okay, so if I start to get this symptom, what should I do? Or when should I be worried? The other thing that we tend to do is any little symptom we get, it's almost like we're so acutely aware of our health that we focus too much on that. So if I have like a sore throat, the air has been horrible here because of the fires. And I've been waking up the past few days with a really bad dry sore throat. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what if I'm getting sick? You know, so you kind of go to that place, totally. you, you you do, you assume the worst, you get, you know, your anxiety goes, goes crazy and, and starts to run ahead. So I would just do your best to get the facts from your doctor and do your best to stay present, take care of yourself, rest. Your stress over COVID is going to make it worse. So you need to do as much as you can to get yourself out of that spiral because stress also affects the body and affects your health. So make sure that you're doing everything that you can to get the facts, focus on your health, do what is within your control. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Okay. We had someone ask, how do you learn to be okay with who you are and not feel like you're bullshitting yourself? We got quite a few questions about being okay with who you are and imposter syndrome. We got a few Mm. questions about that. So kind of just being okay or someone saying like, I fear being alone and living single. So it's kind of like that whole self-acceptance of feeling like you're a fraud. Sure. Yeah. I mean, 
<laughs> I don't know what. This is what I'll say, Joe. I'm sure, I, you know, it'll be so interesting if you have a different, but I'm like, yeah, totally. <laughs> you know? We're, we're both like, yeah, uh-huh. That's life. Right. That's a part of life. Right. And it's not yep. to say like, oh, we'll deal with it and move on. Right. But I think what we're both just chuckling about is this is 100% a part of the human experience as well. So yep. the fact that you're thinking I'm an, I'm an imposter, I, I can't do it, or I'm bullshitting myself, or I'm, you know, everybody, th- everyone thinks I have my shit together, but I don't, is... Right, I'm a fraud. Yeah, <laughs> is 100% part of the human experience. So yep. it's not to say that, like, you just have to deal with that, but we are normalizing that that is... Every single person that I know of goes through that same thing. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, and I think, um, you know, I'll say, you know, this is a good example, just getting on you know, this podcast this morning with you, right? Like I'm talking to my wife this morning and I'm like, what if I'm terrible? And she's like, this is supposed to be fun. Like, Why are you being so weird? And I was like, good point. Good point. Good talk. You know, good so, talk. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. She's not a therapist. So she's like, relax. I'm like, that doesn't, no human feels better when you say relax, you know, but fine. <laughs> no one feels better when you say relax. <laughs> yeah. Like that yeah. never makes you relax. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, in case anyone was wondering, that's not a good communication skill. So, um, but I think, I mean, I think this is a common experience. I would say, I would wonder too, you know, I would suspect that a lot more of your, your list, your listeners are more women than men. Yeah. So while I think that men and women both struggle with those experiences, I think, especially for those of us who are socialized as women, Yeah. you know, that's a lot of, of our experiences. And, you know, I think that that's really hard. There's no quick fix. I mean, I can say that something that I will do, an exercise that I will do, I will do this and I will uh, prompt people in my life, which could be patients. It also could be just like friends and family to think about their resume, whatever that resume might be. It could be professional, it could be personal. Yeah. All the things that you've done. Right. And like, and to, to think about it as if it was somebody else's resume and how you would feel about that person if, you know, like, you got that like on a piece of paper. Yeah. And you know, the the truth is, is like most of us have done things that are badass and super cool and completely unique to us. And it's still common to feel, especially when we feel stressed out to feel that, uh, that fear that, that starts in adolescence, right? That everyone is watching us. And if they know who we truly are, we will be rejected by society. Right. Exactly. And I think that when we're talking about, because I think this really relates to self-esteem and self-concept is it's easy to just say, oh, you're great. You're wonderful. Don't think those things. We feel like crap sometimes about ourselves and we're going to beat ourselves up and we're our own worst critic. I think with practice and time, which I know we want these feelings to go away immediately. We don't like bad feelings. That's why we kind of shove them under the rug. But to tolerate those feelings and kind of say, all right, a lot of these are kind of more like CBT and DBT tools where you're kind of going, okay, that's a thought that I'm having. It doesn't mean it's true. And to continue to practice acknowledging that you're like, oh, that's funny. I feel like I'm a fraud. That doesn't mean I'm going to stop doing what I'm doing with my life. So how you do one thing is how you do everything. For example, if you're like, I'm a fraud every second of every day, I want you to think about how like, that's just self-doubt. That's lack of self-esteem. That's lack of self-concept of like doing everything, something every single day to kind of build up your confidence. And confidence really comes from, I believe, like mastering a skill, getting good at something. Sure. So 
continuously writing down the things that you're good at and building that up and building up the things that you want to get good at and trying and continuing to try, that will just keep developing those patterns and like sure. building up your confidence. And it's it really is baby steps. I think back uh, when I was in my 20s, when I was working at the DA's office and I had to give presentations, I was terrified of speaking in front of people. I would... I would physically shake. My voice would shake. It was so embarrassing. And that truly just took so much time for me to just kind of get out of my own way. And I also believe it's maturity. I mean, when we're younger and you lack experience, you you feel inferior to the people who have more experience. And so, right, right, um, for sure. so I think that is such a really important thing that all of us deal with, but with time and with practice, building up those skills that you can kind of keep putting in your tool belt and putting on your resume and be like, look at all these things I've done. I think you'll continuously get better at it. But self-doubt is also just our way of kind of keeping ourselves in check. I think if we didn't have self-doubt, we'd just be all walking around as narcissists and that's not good either no no it's not (laughs) yeah like a teeny bit is probably like a good it's a good thing to have a teeny bit of yeah a teeny (laughs) bit of self-doubt is really good (laughs) like am i terrible okay i'm not okay good good right yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any tips for avoiding a vulnerability hangover? So that just means like mm-hmm. if you've shared too much or if you feel like you've shared something maybe with the wrong person and you wake up the next day and you're like, oh my gosh, why did I say that? Or why did I put that out there? I, well, what do you think, Joy? I mean, I, what I'm about to say is like a little bit nerdy, but you know, I think in the, <laughs> I mean, it's fine. It's like, fine. That's just who I am. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I think in the in this is part of the critical feedback we can have for things like social media, because I think yeah. that, you know, Facebook defining anyone who we're in contact with as friends has created, I think, a difficulty in us being able to differentiate between friends and acquaintances. I mean, or even people like, that you haven't talked to for 20 years. But. <laughs> right. Well, I did. I will say I did this like social media purge a couple years ago where like if you weren't a blood relation that I actually like or I want to have coffee with you, even if we can't have coffee like you and I can't really have coffee. Right. Because we're literally right. But I want to have coffee with you. Right. If you're not part of those groups. Right. 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 Which is very smart, actually. Yeah. I should do that (laughs) today. (laughs) Yeah. I went from close to 2000 people to like 167. Wow. I actually that's a that's a good that's you know what? And when I started Facebook when like this was forever ago, I was just like all about, I want to be friends with everybody. This is fun. Right, right. Well, I mean, you know, like the smartest computer engineers in the world are putting together the algorithms to keep us on social media. I think about that all the time. I'm like, what could we do with this brain power that if it was not... You know, but whatever, that's fine. Okay, great, well, right? It's a different, yeah, totally. Um, but I, I do think that <laughs> what could we do with this brain power? <laughs> yeah, I mean, God, lots of I know, yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, but but I, I do think that conceptualizing all contacts as friends, I think that's the first actual um, mm-hmm. pitfall that then allows us to sometimes overshare with people who are not trusted. So, I mean, I think the first thing to say is, like, I, I remember Brene saying this on, like, Oprah, like, Super Soul Sunday. And I'm sure she says this in a book, too, which is, like, you have to earn somebody's story. Yes, yeah. Share yeah. your story with the people who've earned it. Yeah, I totally agree. So, yeah. if they haven't earned it, so 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 if you've already done it, just move on, right? Right. You kind of have to just be like, okay, I'm moving on. The world didn't end. I'm going to learn and I'll do better next time 
or I'll right. share less I, next time with that person. Yep. I, and yeah. And I, I think that's the, the thing to do is to say, okay, they didn't earn my story. I'm going to move on to the next thing. And th- hopefully the next time I have an interaction, mm-hmm. I'm not going to be the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have this weird thing and I've done this with a few patients is it's not a weird thing, but it's just, it's like, it's kind of like a fun little tool that I do. If I feel like, you know how Beyonce has Sasha Fierce? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> If you don't know, listeners, what I'm talking about, I just need you to Google that because you, you should. Need to you pause should, and Google it. You, yeah, you need to pause and Google because you should know Sasha Fierce. Even Beyonce needs an alter ego when she mm. goes, you know? Yes. Yes, for sure. Which says everything. Even Beyonce needs Sasha Fierce. Right. So what right. I have done with patients is I've been like, I want you to go online and I want you to Google whatever like image is your your Sasha Fierce. And it could be like Wonder Woman. I've had specifically women print out these like amazing superhero figures with like swords and like beautiful like body suits, like badass. It, it doesn't matter who that is for you, but if I want you to get an image and I want you to print it out, well, whatever, or put it on your screensaver. Whatever, you know, we don't have printers. <laughs> I just sounded like 1990. I want you to print it out and I want you to put it on your fridge. Um, No, but I... Mimeograph of it. (laughs) And I want you to fax it. No. Um, But, you know, put it on your screensaver and I want that to be your image of your Sasha Fierce, of like who you need to be when you step on stage and you just need to have someone else take over because you're not there yet and or you just need to have that, the strength of that person. Right, and. And it's it's kind of like our way of just kind of tricking ourselves to be like, I'm going to embrace this energy and this power and I need to like turn on my Sasha fears and like give her a name, give him a name, give the person a name, whatever it needs to be for you to just kind of have that alter ego to where, and it's for good. I'm not saying you need to be yeah. like this like a-hole that's like, I'm going to turn on my whatever. It's This is not meant to be a negative like when you're <laughs> right, in a right, fight, right. you're turning into like a monster. I'm just saying like when you <laughs> need that boost of confidence, Mm-hmm. Beyonce says she turns into Sasha Fierce because she needs that person to take over on stage. Like, that's what we need. That's what yeah, you need to do. Yeah. yeah, which, you know, is the, I mean, that is the best way I've ever heard someone discuss what you just said is, you know, it's acting as if. Yeah, right? it's, it's totally acting as if. as if, right. Yeah, but it's like, a, it's a really great way of, you know, the idea that like even Beyonce needs that person. I mean, shit, man. She's like literally like... <laughs> she's Beyonce right I can't think of anyone more confident or badass yeah I can't either I really can't nope no one there's not not. no there's not there's really not so everybody (laughs) go right now I want you to pull up your alter ego and I want you to put it somewhere that you're always reminded that you have that you have that in you okay great wonderful I need to do that I haven't done that in a while oh it's good it's a good exercise Yeah. yeah Okay. And you can even like draw your own if you're like super artsy. I am not, but so I'm just going to steal an image off the interwebs. Um, okay. <laughs> we have some comparative suffering. Someone says they have guilt and shame for not having it as bad as others, but still suffering tremendous anxiety, depression. Um, I would just kind of go back to that piece of 
everyone's feelings are valid. Comparative suffering is always going to happen. And that's just our way because you're a nice human that you're trying to say, I am counting my blessings. I know I'm very lucky, but I still struggle as a human. So there's no, there's no level. There's no like one to 10. Well, if you're at a five, you're fine. Move on. Any level of suffering is still suffering. So I think that that's, I don't know what you, you would say, Joy, but it's like that comparative piece of like, don't feel guilty. It's okay to feel guilty, but just know that your feelings are valid. Yeah, our feelings are valid. And I think the other thing is, is that um, I think about this all the time. If we're comparing ourselves to people with incredible barriers and trauma, I mean, the truth is, is that, and I'm not saying I'm happy with this, because I'm not just a therapist, I'm also someone who's social justice, like I have a social justice mindset. So I want their people to have equity. Mm -hmm. But people that have long term experiences of trauma and suffering, their capacity to hold that grows. So if your capacity to hold suffering is a thimble or it's a drinking glass or it's an ocean and that vessel is filled, then it's still filled to overflowing, yep. you know? Yep. And so, you know, if like your ability to manage a thimble that is filled to overflowing or a drinking glass or an ocean is still you maxing out your capacity to hold whatever it is that's happening to you. And that is something that we need to attend to in ourselves and into people that we care about. Totally. Um, it doesn't mean that we don't want to then say, I, I do think that if we have more, you know, we know this from like recovery communities like AA, when you have more of something, giving that more away is a way of, I think, alleviating our experience of suffering because it takes us out of ourselves totally. and helps us to focus on others. Yep. But it doesn't mean the experience is invalid or less than because it's not as big or bad as what someone else might someone be Someone else might. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's a great way to kind of visualize that because... Uh, I think we can always, always look to see who else is having it worse. And then that really kind of diminishes you getting through something. And no matter the size, you getting working through it and saying, this is difficult. I'm acknowledging that I'm suffering. Have a pity party if you need to. I always say, even if you feel bad for yourself, like, okay, if you you are having a hard time just feeling bad for yourself and you're feeling guilty about that, give yourself a timer, 10 minutes. Mm. Give yourself a pity party for 10 minutes. I'm going to give you that pity party and let yourself feel those feelings like go there okay yeah all right so big hug to you and then let's talk about because we're i'm already like wow we're running out of time we may we i always say this whenever i do a mental health awareness week i'm like we're gonna have to have a part two (laughs) um okay so really kind of getting into supporting people loved ones who are suffering so i had we had a lot of questions about supporting people with depression or supporting people maybe loved ones saying like advice when your partner doesn't believe or support seeking additional mental health care or how do you Mm. support someone who's struggling with depression how do you support someone who's struggling with addiction you know we talked we had someone ask about how do you do an intervention so it's kind of like all of these how do I support someone else? And I wanted to talk a little bit about, I don't know if you have initial thoughts, Joy, but I kind of also want to talk about the stages of change. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because that's great. If, and, and everyone can kind of Google this because it everything's Googleable. You know, the stages of change is used very strongly in the addiction, specifically in the addiction world, but it really can be, you can talk about it with anything when we're talking about someone who's motivated to, for change or not. But 
the start of it is what they call, and I'm not going to go into the whole model because I'm just realizing we're running out of time, but it's, it, it talks about pre-contemplation, contemplation, determination, action, relapse, or maintenance. So if someone is in a pre-contemplation phase, that means they're thinking about it. Now, if someone is not even on the radar of pre-contemplation, you're going to have a hard time getting through to that person. And that's what I think is really hard. And I always reference the addiction world and chemical dependency world because I feel like it's so can transfer to so many things in our lives of if you see someone who's struggling and they have no interest in getting help, I'm sorry to tell you there's nothing you can do other than love that person and support them as much as you can and continue to say you love them and you're thinking of them and you are there for them. But if they have no interest in changing, I don't know if you feel differently, Joy, but I've never seen someone have success with that other than resentment comes up because they're like, you're trying to change me and you, and it just turns into a fight. Right. And I think that the, I, I 100% agree with that. And I think that the human who, the person who's like, oh, I need to go, I need to continue to try to fix them. I would say if you find yourself in that, it probably means that you need to seek some kind of support. Yes, I was going to say that too, like getting support about that relationship and how you play into that relationship. Right. Which is hard for people to hear. It is hard for people to hear. And I think that, you know, but but the, well... And I think the dynamic of those things are co-created. You can look at like, think about like an old school image of of alcoholism from like mm-hmm. the 60s where like the wife is enabling the husband's crappy decision making and covering for him yep. and blah, blah, blah. Yep. And it's like, well, as soon as she stops doing that, he will become beholden to the con- the con- negative natural consequences of his bad decisions, but the wife doesn't want that. Right. She wants change without suffering. Yep. I think change, to, there is no human change that I know of that happens in the absence of suffering. So I think that's hard, you know, because I think we don't want suffering in our lives. But I mean, no physical or mental change that we can make as humans happens without some kind of suffering. And that's even when we're choosing it for ourselves. So I know that like you've run marathons before, like you go do that, like you are going to take on suffering when you go and do that training. Yeah. And how much you can kind of endure. I know this sounds really silly, but just an example, like when I was, whenever I'm doing a Peloton run, a lot of the times one of the coaches says, how much can you push past that feeling of really of discomfort? How can we're trying to build up your stamina to push to endure the discomfort? Right. And so when you get to discomfort, I'm like, oh, I can't tell you how many times I've pushed myself on the treadmill to a point where I'm like, God damn it, I get really excuse my language, like I get so angry because I'm like, you pushed me past the point where I am comfortable. And I just like, I, I, there's the Peloton has like this knob that you just roll back and it stops the treadmill. And I've like rolled it back. And I've done this with CrossFit where I get so mad because I'm like, oh, that was like beyond my point. of. So it is, it's like the suffering and you kind of hit a point where you're like, I'm so angry. And you get to the, the nitty gritty of your feelings. But I think that the change piece is really hard for people to kind of think that they just want to kind of say, well, if only we could get this help and and you get the help, then we'll be good. And right. I, can't, I hate to break it to you, everybody, but relationships that have either addiction or some type of dysfunction, everybody has a part in that. It yep. is never the one, it's never the addict. It's never right. just the depressed person. It's never, it's never one person that holds the weight. 
Right. And right. people don't want to hear that because they're like, me? <laughs> it's not me. And so right. I, that's hard to hear, but it's the truth. And once we can accept that and say, okay, how do we all play a part in this party? Then we can start to to heal. Right. Which could in the, in the short term mean disconnecting from disconnecting from that relationship yep. in a loving way. I was just going to say that. It also yeah. could mean that you break up. Right. Which is yeah. scary. It could also mean divorce. Right. Which it is scary. Be. Yeah. Or taking, if it's a, if it's like a um, parent or sibling, it might be saying, I love you and I can't be in your life right now. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. I can't continue to watch you do this to yourself. It's much too painful. Yep. I mean, that requires that person that just wants the other, the other to get better. Exactly. To make a decision for them to get better. Yep. Exactly. So that has a lot to do. So I would highly recommend if your partner is not going to get into therapy, that you get into therapy. And if you, if, if you're, if your friend or family member is an addict and they're not going to get help, you need to go get help. You need to go to Al-Anon or whatever support group so you can learn how you are a part of the addiction cycle. Yep. And I cannot state overstate that because people don't want to hear that they are part of the addiction. Right. Right. It's very, very scary to to acknowledge that and to face that. Okay, let's do like some rapid fire so we can sure, get sure. through some of these questions. And certainly everyone, again, just want to reiterate, if you have more follow-up questions, email this is Claire at gmail.com. And we Joy and I would be happy to continue to do these bonus episodes for mental health awareness. If you have anything, we're happy to help. And um, it's so, so many questions here that I feel like we do need to kind of circle, yeah. circle back. Let's see. How about <laughs> how, oh, I do want to answer this because I know I mentioned it at the beginning beginning of the episode is how do you evaluate if a therapist is a good fit? Uh, Mm -hmm. Or how do you know if you have the right therapist? We got some questions around that. Uh, If you've never been in therapy before, I get that you would not understand like, what is it supposed to feel like? Really, it's just supposed to feel good. You're supposed to like your therapist. You're supposed to feel like you're you're clear on a treatment plan. So if you go in, I personally am not someone who loves aimless talk therapy. I think therapy should have a treatment plan. So if you... And a lot of therapists might disagree with me on this, but the way I practice, I feel like we got to have a plan. You got to have some goals. We got to have movement. I also truly believe there's there's benefit in talking to process. But if there's no goals attached to it, I think it can feel, it can feel aimless. So I think talking to your therapist about what is your treatment plan? What do you think I should, what does progression look like? How do we measure my progress? Um, I think that's pretty important, but you may just need to go in and feel good because you're unloading all of these feelings. So I think that the short answer is you should just feel good and you should feel like you have some type of idea of where you're going with your therapist. Agree. Okay. Agree. Medication without shame. Well, I always have to take medication. Oh gosh. Okay. I I totally, totally get this. So medication, I've said this before. If you have a cold, you take medicine. If you have high blood pressure, you take medicine. I know, I I mean, colds obviously are short term, but like if you have a condition, you take medication for it. There's a lot of research out there that you could probably go into about medication for depression that's not taking a prescription and whatever. But I will just share my personal story. So perhaps it helps some people's. I was very much having shame around medication because I was like, oh, am I going to have to take it forever? And here's what it came down to. I was not willing to keep to continue 
continue my suffering just because I had some type of hang up about taking a pill that would help my brain disease. So I was like, you know what? I have a chemical imbalance. I'm talking to my doctor about this. I trust my doctor. I trust research. I I want to take a researched <laughs> approach. Um, right, I believe in science. I believe in science. And I, you know, be, and I work with psychiatrists all the time who are like, patients will come to us with, with recommendations that they've read on Google. And I'm like, there's no research behind it. You can try it, but there's not research for me to say this is a good idea for you. So that was where I was just like, you know what? I'm now no longer willing to continue this, my life being this way, that I have to struggle mentally. I'm willing to give it a chance. And if I have to take it for a long time, that to me, the happiness that I have and the improved relationships that I have in my life outweigh the shame and guilt that I'm going to like put on myself for taking it. So I, I would say that weigh those pros and cons, but really talk to your doctor and have that conversation and have, and tell your doctor that you're afraid that you're going to have to be on it forever and see what right. they say. Just really fast to you. I mean, we could yeah. get like super in the weeds about this. Yeah. But this is a holdover of the belief that mental illness and addiction yep. is a moral defect. Right. Right. Those things are not moral defects. No, like people that are connected to the science of mental health care do not believe that anymore. That's why we have psychiatrists. Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the truth is, is that when we, you know, we just don't know enough about the brain yet. But when we, lo- when we know more about the brain, like we will have, a, we will have better ways to help mm-hmm. and better ways to understand and help patients understand what's going on inside of them. Mm-hmm. But we're just not there yet. I mean, we're getting there but it's going to take some time. Yes. Talk to your doctor. By the way, you can talk to your primary care if you have what's called, I would say like a more mild case of depression to where it's not like you're feeling suicidal every day or feeling like you can't get out of bed every morning, that type of thing. I would say the more severe clinical depression would probably warrant a visit to a psychiatrist who prescribes medication for behavioral health. But you could also talk to your primary care physician about right. medication. Might, yeah. And they yeah. might, I mean, they, they might not want to do it forever. Right. But right, right, right. even while you're waiting to see a psychiatrist, exactly. that can be a good stopgap. Yeah. yeah. Feeling really judgmental lately. People vacationing while I'm still staying home. I totally <laughs> agree. <laughs> uh, I also am dealing with this. I'm so judgmental. Yeah. I have friends in my life who are like telling me all the plans they're doing every week, every night, sometimes every weekend. <laughs> And how busy they are. And I'm like, why? And they live in a different state, of course, but I am so judgmental. And here's what it comes down to. It's kind of like you can't police the internet. I'm like, I can only tend to my own garden. I it's it's frustrating to see people deal with it on different levels. However, as long as I feel like I can talk to my friend, this person that I'm referring to, I'm always like, I hope you're being safe. I'm really concerned, (laughs) but I hope you're being safe. Is if that is what's making that person mentally stable yep. and their family mentally stable, that is not my place to judge. Right. I just pray that everyone is being safe for everybody and that we're all doing the best that we the, we're all doing the best that we can. Yeah. So if if there's someone like blatantly saying screw masks, masks are dumb, you're taking away my freedom, then I think that we have an issue, but and I would probably be like, yeah, I'm judging you. But I think that we're <laughs> Out loud, right now. Out loud. Um, <laughs> you know, is we are all doing, let's just assume we're all doing the best that we can. And if someone needs to make these plans with their families or little mini vacations that they're taking, because that is keeping them sane, I I think we just kind of have, like, those are the things we have to start weighing the risks. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah, I think that's the part of it that I think. So I think there's an importance. There's it's important for us to be informed. It's important for us to make a like a decision, I think, to enter into the social contract that we want as many people to be as safe as possible. But then I think there's also the the individual. So like me as an individual and then my family as an individual to weigh where I am and the risks and benefits of doing X versus doing Y. Right. And I don't think, I think that's what's difficult is there isn't just one way of doing that. Mm -hmm. Like you and I, I mean, I go to work every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, I work in a hospital. You know, you go to work every day. You are working in an outpatient center. I mean, I see patients. I've cared for COVID positive patients who are COVID positive, but like not medically unstable. So they can be in my my setting instead. Mm -hmm. I then have to make the individual decisions that are going to try to keep myself safe and the people in my life safe. That is, there's an aspect of this that's individual Mm -hmm. uh, that I think that I try to hold. And that's the other side of it, right? Is then if, if I make a decision to do something that may have more risk, I also have to I have to then be, I can't blame the consequences of that decision on somebody else. Right. So I think that's the part of it too, is that I think part of why we're getting so feisty about that is because we, we wonder if, if something bad happens, if these people are going to then like blame others. And, but that's, an, that's, it's an interesting thing that I've noticed. This is new where we're like mask judgment and how we're dealing with the pandemic judgment and are you sending your kids to school or not judgment and that type of thing sure. is really, sure. is really, really interesting. Someone asked about play therapy and you know what that is for like kiddos yeah i keep hearing about play therapy for kids is this a specialized approach yes it is play therapy is for well actually i mean it's for all ages but there's there's a lot of different methods with play therapy play therapy is a type of therapy that's more experiential it's not talking as most of you who have children teenagers know kids are not going to sit down and just talk to a therapist and understand the concept (laughs) of therapy. And so play therapy is a way to kind of work with a child and notice patterns of play. Sometimes children will start talking while you're playing. You know, for instance, if I'm playing with a dollhouse with a child and we're walking through a scenario and I'm like, ooh, I'm the daddy doll. And we're like, okay, what do I do next? And you kind of let the child direct the play. You just kind of watch for patterns of how their world is viewed. If they're saying, oh, I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to go away because I'm really scared. You just kind of note that. You don't dive too deeply into like overanalyzing everything. Children are imaginative, but you kind of just look for patterns of anywhere to be concerned. But play therapy just in a in a nutshell is 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 an experiential type of therapy where you're within the context of, of an activity and the therapist is trained to look for patterns that might be concerning or somewhere that you can kind of help a child build confidence through an activity. Okay, so let's let's end up and tie up with one more question. Okay, so why don't you take this one? It says sure, sure. um Supporting loved ones who experience suicidal ideation and suicidal ideation stigmas. Well, so I think that's um, the first thing I'll say is, is that we should always take this seriously. Yes. There are people who who struggle with depression or other diagnoses who experience suicidal ideation for multiple years with no suicide attempts. That is an a thing that happens. And we still need to take it seriously when it comes up because there's a lot of data that that people that engage in suicide attempts or die by suicide, that that happens very quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, so from mm-hmm. onset to ideation to 
trying something to end their life or ending their life can be sometimes less than a five-minute process. So when that comes up, we need to take it seriously. The other part of it is we have to be mindful of some of the language we use because it makes us really uncomfortable. I mean, there is literally like if you want to clear the room at a Thanksgiving event when we can do that again, you know, like if your uncle's being like troubling and they drank too much and you just want to like clear everybody out, just start talking about suicide. Like it is like, yeah, nobody wants to talk about that. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, everyone's out. Right. But I think that, you know, I think that it because of that, it can lead to some things that are that can really feel invalidating for the person who's suffering. Suffering, yeah. Yeah. So like one is we kind of put our own our own scales, like we weigh it with our own scale. So we might say something like, you wouldn't want to do that. I mean, that would devastate your family. Yeah. Right. But like, maybe the family is part of what's creating this experience for them, right? You know, as an example, or, you know, maybe for people of faith, we say something like, well, you're going to go to hell, right? Or, or like, you don't want to disappoint God like that. But the person is maybe queer, you know, and so they already feel like they're a disappointment to God, you know, so you've put them in the spine. I mean, even professionals do this thing where, I mean, where we say something like, you don't want to do anything stupid, like kill yourself, do you? Or you don't want to, you don't want to kill yourself, do you? Yeah. Well, we, we, we clearly want the answer to be no. Right. When we ask the question like that. So, so I think taking it seriously is important. I think if you're a lay person, I think when someone says that to you, like not leaving them alone, whether that means staying on the phone with them or right. staying physically present and then connecting them to resources. Uh, so this is the part I think that is most difficult sometimes is that because there's such a stigma around this and there's such a need to keep it, to keep it under wraps, to not tell anyone about it. That is true in the person who's dealing with suicidal ideation. And it can be like a experience that we then start to hold with them. Mm -hmm. That is the wrong, this is not the moment to be like, I will never tell anyone your secrets. Like, no, I can tell you that you know, when you think about someone who successfully navigates that, this is a time to turn on the lights, open the windows and pull air in. Mm -hmm. You need additional Mm -hmm. resources. Mm -hmm. Other people need to know that could be their PCP. That could mean primary care provider. Yeah, Yeah, right. Their primary care physician could be lifeline, you know, the national suicide uh, prevention hotline. Yep. Um, That could be using the crisis text line that could be taking them to an emergency room, you know, or calling whatever crisis services might be in your area, yep. but you cannot navigate that on your on own. On your own, right. Heck no. Right. And don't don't feel like you have to take that on. Don't feel like you have to keep that a secret. Reach out and talk to someone or even call the lifeline. And I can Absolutely. put, I'm going to put that number in the show notes as well. But just if you want it right now, it's 800-273-8255, 800-273-8255. And you can just go to the website, which is National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And I always think, I mean, people, if you are a person who has a cell phone, that number should be in your cell phone. Yep. Because someone in your life is going to need it at some point. Yes. Yes, yes. That's a great point to just put it in your cell phone. The other thing is, uh, in, I should, it's stating the obvious, but call 911 if there's an emergency. Yes. That's what they're yes. there for. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, if you don't know what the other resources are, just call 911. Yeah, they yeah. will know. And yeah. especially if there's someone who is actively suicidal, just meaning that they're actively making threats, they have a plan, they, you know, are, are expressing these feelings to you and you don't know what to do in the moment, just call 911. Um, I also just want to kind of put the caveat in 
um, as we wrap up this episode is that this is not an intention for this episode to be a replacement for therapy, but please always know that we are available to give you resources and guide you in the direction of, of how to seek resources. I know a lot of people will email me just asking how to find a therapist and navigate that. And I'm happy to help because I know it is kind of like this, like, how do I even start? What do I even look for? And what kind of credentials am I looking for? So we're always happy to guide you with that to email us at this is joyandclare at gmail.com. But I, I'm sorry, I interrupted you about the um, any type of like how to help someone with suicide, if you had any other thoughts about that. I mean, I just think it's a, if it's, a you know, the secret is the secret kills. So keeping it a secret is mm-hmm. very problematic, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and I and I think that the other thing is, is, we talked about this earlier before we got on as we've been processing this, you know, the things that are risk factors for suicide have been exponentially increased yep. in the pandemic. The pandemic, so, I was, you read my mind, yeah, I was just going to say yeah. that is like the risk factors are now yeah. that we, everything is everything is heightened, the especially with the physical distancing and the loneliness. When you are alone, and you are just sitting with your own thoughts, and you have depression and you are having thoughts of suicide, now is not the time to isolate more. Really do as much as you can to text a friend, to text a lifeline, to text you know, there's plenty of suicide resources out there where you can just text if you do, if you aren't mm-hmm. comfortable calling. You know, seeking that support is just so 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 important. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we can. There's an article that I think is a helpful overview that you know we shared. We could link to that. I mean, it's publicly available, um, and Great. it's just talking about that. You know, and I would say it's true for suicide. It's true for addiction. It's true for any struggle with mental illness right now, which is just that the risk factors have been just put in a pressure cooker. One hundred. I guess. I guess we call that an Instapot now. Yep. Uh, <laughs> you know, it turned on high. Um, totally. Yeah. It's really funny because I was actually talking to my executive coach recently about that of just how the instant pot needs to let off steam. So it's okay to kind of like just have those moments where you just need yep. to be like, ah, because um, <laughs> we can have judgment about that too. Of Like, why do I get angry? Like, don't judge your negative feelings. Everyone has negative feelings. Feelings are not final. You're going to run through the emotions wheel daily all over the place. So let's just say everybody's doing their best. You guys are doing just fine. Get help if you need it. Seek support, especially especially this year when we're dealing with so much. But I just want to um, say... You know, everyone submitted such great questions, and we'd love to continue to have these conversations. And you know, anytime that you need uh, resources or help or want us to address specific topics, you can certainly let us know. Joy and I'd be happy to do another episode or two or three if this would be helpful for you guys. This was a great con- our first conversation. It was a great one. I think it was really good. <laughs> I really do. Yeah, I, I do feel too. Like, I do too. Oh, that's what I was going to say too. We, we did mention, I was like, I knew I was forgetting something of just like the increase of drinking this year too. Yeah. Of like oh, just sure, acknowledging yeah. that piece. And, you know, we kind of see memes and gifts floating around about how everyone's just dealing with the pandemic drinking. And I think sometimes like, yes, we can laugh at that, but it's also not funny. Like we are uh, right. the the unhealthy coping mechanisms can can be a slippery slope. And so I just want to say sure. like it's fine if we're having some booze here and there and we're like eating our feelings and whatever. 
but it's a slippery slope into something that could really harm our mental health. Okay. So Mm -hmm. just kind of to keep that in check and seek help if you need it. I just remember when our mayor at the beginning of the pandemic almost shut down all of our liquor stores because they were just like worried about obviously COVID. So they were going to shut everything down and shut down the stores as well. And there were lines around the corner, around the block to get into liquor stores. And then he just canceled it because he saw that all what he just created was mass gatherings. (laughs) So it was like, okay, that's a problem. So I just wanted to kind of call that out too, is that, you know, our unhealthy coping skills may be increased right now and to just keep that in check as far as taking care of ourselves. So thank you, Joy, so much for joining this episode. You guys can find us. uh, This is joyandclare at gmail.com. Send us all your feedback and uh, hopefully we will be able to do this again soon. 